Just this morning, we've been reminded that we live in the land of the dying. Three families just bereaved of loved ones. One grandmother, extended family, significant influence over many lives. One of our widows dying in a sleep. And then a young man with a young family diagnosed with leukemia just this month and now already with the Lord. If you live long enough, you end up going to a lot of funerals. It becomes more a part of life than we would like. Ecclesiastes tells us with life under the sun that it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, because it causes us to stop and think about eternity and about our relationship to God. And we know that, but when death hits close to home, it can be even more painful than we ever imagined. The grief doesn't end when the funeral's over. In fact, it's often something that we carry till the day of our own death or till the day the Lord comes back. Well, our passage this morning is specifically addressed to those who have lost loved ones who belong to Jesus, and is specifically given for our comfort and our hope. And so I draw your attention to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Paul writes, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even, even so, though through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For with this we declare to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. As many of you know, the words caught up in verse 17 are the basis of the doctrine of the rapture. It comes from the Latin word raptura of believers who are alive when Jesus returns. The Greek term that Paul uses, translated caught up, pictures a violent seizing, a sudden rescue like what the Roman centurion did when he rescued Paul from the lynch mob in the temple precincts when they were trying to kill him. As you know, there's been considerable debate about the rapture, not whether it will happen, but when exactly it fits among the other events of the last days. We call that study eschatology, the doctrine of last things. Our text here actually does not give us that information about the timing. So, establishing the timing of the rapture requires 
correctly weaving together relevant cross-references. It's a challenging task. And you have but to read the literature on the topic, as I have done over the last couple weeks, my head exploding, (laughs) to come away impressed with how varied the solutions are. And as is common in trying to explain what has not yet been fulfilled, every proposed solution leaves some questions remaining, which, of course, opponents of the position love to seize upon. So before I preach on what this text actually says, let me give some cautions. First and foremost, we must not let the questions and the debates distract us from the clear meaning of the passage in front of us this morning. Second, whenever there is considerable disagreement among born-again, Bible-believing Christians trying to figure out how the Scriptures fit together, we do well to exercise humility about our own view, especially regarding what has not yet been fulfilled. Third, we dare not abandon the Christian hallmark of respectful love for those with whom we disagree on debatable matters. Snide, offhand remarks that assign bad motives or poor intellect for differences of interpretation are foolish and hurtful. And there are certain traditions that particularly love to do that with this text. Fourth, whatever view you hold, we need to beware ignoring clear scriptural statements in order to bolster or protect our preferred systematic theological position. Letting any theological tradition override clear statements in Scripture is dangerous. It tends to obscure the truth, limit growth and understanding, and entrench mistakes. We preachers tend to fall to this error as much or more than anyone else because of our familiarity with historic theology and because we like to be clear and decisive in what we say. So, in the interest of teaching what is here, without the distractions of debating what is not, I'm going to focus this morning on what this passage specifically says, rather than trying to explain multiple passages that deal with related questions, in particular the timing of the event. I know that decision might be a disappointment to you, But I believe we will be better served to focus on what is here and undeniable. Furthermore, if we work through all the potential cross-references to this text, it would take us till mid-afternoon. But I think worse, we would miss the treasure that we have before us. And I'll just confess, when I thought about this text Some months ago, thinking about preaching on it, I didn't know I'd be preaching it the way that I'm preaching it today. Um, And I think that I was better served to actually read what the text says and what what it communicates to us. So here's what we have, and here is the theme. Divine comfort for grieving saints. Paul bookends what he has to say 
with declaring that there is reason for our hope and comfort in grief. And then he articulates what those specific reasons, reasons are. In verses 15 and 16, he refers to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He also, in those verses, refers to the resurrection of the dead in Christ. And then in the beginning of verse 17, the reunion of all believers with the Lord. And finally, in the last part of verse 17, our residence with the Lord forever. I think as you look at those reasons, the return of the Lord, the resurrection of the dead in Christ, the reunion of all believers, and the fact that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, that is the comfort that we need and the hope that we need whenever we grieve the loss of our loved ones. So first consider with me reason for hope and comfort in grief. Verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And then he ends the passage with, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Or what does he mean by those who are asleep? He actually uses that terminology three times, verse 13, 14, and 15, those that are asleep. And in verse 16, he defines precisely what he means. These are the dead in Christ, okay? It's, you recall that when Lazarus died, and Jesus said he's fallen asleep. The disciples thought he was talking about just sleeping like you would recovering from an illness. And they said, well, that's good if he's sleeping. He says, Lazarus has died. And so this is language that the Lord himself has used, referring to believers who die in Christ. They are asleep. They are at rest from their labors, and it is temporary. Paul writes what he does here in part so that the believers will not be uninformed. Ignorance of truth creates problems for us, especially in times of deep pain. We, we need an anchor. We need something to hold on to when why is screaming in our hearts and we are in great pain of bereavement. We must beware telling ourselves lies when we are struggling with sorrow and suffering they only add to our misery. Of all times, we need the truth when we are grieving. Second, Paul writes, so that we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We have a guaranteed future in Christ. There's a connection between gospel doctrine and, and gospel hope. We have future certainty. Now, Paul does not say that Christians should not grieve the death of their brothers and sisters in Christ at all. We are taught, Romans 12, to weep with those who weep. And Jesus himself wept at the tomb of Lazarus. We're told that he was deeply troubled as he encountered the death of this brother, even though he was about to call him back to life. Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah would be a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. Our hearts need to know that. We need to know that Jesus knows what it's like to grieve. Jesus knows 
what it's like to suffer loss, that what we're going through is not something he has no capacity to understand. But Paul says that that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. That's a different kind of grieving. Ephesians 2.12, Paul said, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, this is before you trusted in Him, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There's no one so hopeless as one that is cut off from God. Greek thought dominated the world in which Paul lived. They viewed the body as a prison house of the soul and death as a release. The body was to be discarded. There was no use for it and no hope for it. A variety of ancient Greek ideas regarding death, either it was the end of everything, the soul disintegrating once the body died, that's what Aristotle believed, or a change of existence as the soul escaped the body into whatever lay beyond. Some view it as a better existence, like Plato, and others, like Homer, as worse. I was reading this week from the Department of Greek and Roman Art, Metropolitan Museum of Art, about the death, burial, and afterlife in ancient Greece. And they write, in the Odyssey, Homer describes the underworld deep beneath the earth where Hades, the brother of Zeus and Poseidon, and his wife, Persephone, reign over countless drifting crowds of shadowy figures, the shades of all those who have died. It was not a happy place. Indeed, the ghost of the great hero Achilles told Odysseus that he would rather be a poor serf on earth than lord of all the dead in the underworld. This is one of the ideas that prevailed at the time of the Apostle Paul. Someone else writes, in the face of the death, in face of death, the pagan world stood in despair. They met it with grim resignation and bleak hopelessness. I've been in some funerals like that. Aeschylus wrote, once a man dies, there is no resurrection. Theocritus wrote, there is hope for those who are alive, but those who have died are without hope. Another wrote, when once a brief life sets, there is one perpetual night through which we must sleep. And on their tombstones are carved grim epitaphs. I was not, I became, I am not. I care not. Whatever pagan perspective one took, the living had no hope of ever seeing their loved ones in the body again. Some imagined they might somehow get together in the shadowy afterlife, but a recovery of physical existence and physical relationships was utterly impossible. But the Christian knows better if he's been informed by the revelation of the Lord. God made human beings integrated beings, body and soul, physical and spiritual. Sin brought the sentence of death on all humanity, and the Savior from sin removed the sentence of death. Through the redemption of Christ, God rescues both soul and body. Our eternal existence is not just spiritual. It is physical as well in the new heaven and new earth where we will live sinless and immortal. Death separates soul from the body, but the resurrection will bring the body and soul 
together again. So Paul says, given what we know from the Lord, encourage one another with these words. That's the purpose that he writes the words that are in our text. Did you notice the one another work we are called to engage in? Our brothers and sisters need us to encourage them with these words of hope. The present grief is not final. The best is yet to come. Our loved ones have more living to do and in a far better world. Between the bookends of verse 13 and verse 18, Paul gives specific reasons we have comfort and hope in our sorrow over departed loved ones in Christ. But we do well to consider at the outset that if we are not in Christ through faith in Him, we remain without hope. Death ends any hope we have of turning to Christ and trusting in Him. We will wait in agony for the final judgment when we are consigned to the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. We sided with Satan, and Satan's fate we will share. But if we have put our faith in Christ, then we will be welcomed into him, and we have hope. So let me ask you this morning, what are you doing to ground your thinking in truths the Lord has revealed instead of remaining ignorant of them? By the way, if the Lord hadn't revealed this, there's no way you would know it. How could you know what is beyond if God doesn't tell you? And if you won't listen to God, where, where in the universe do you expect to find the answers? How are you letting the future certainty of your hope in Jesus shape how you endure sorrow? Granted, it feels long, particularly those that we are close to. But we know how quickly life passes, and we know that the best that is to come will soon be ours. What are ways that you can make it a regular practice to encourage and comfort your bereaved brothers and sisters? And by the way, comments like, you mean they're not over it yet? Show that you don't even understand what it's like going through it. Better to acknowledge the grief, if you've not experienced it before, acknowledge the grief and give the kind of comfort that the Lord gives us here. Well, what specifically do we find comfort in? Well, we find comfort in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, verses 15 and 16. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of the archangel with the sound of the trumpet of God. This is not the first mention of Jesus' return in this letter of 1 Thessalonians. Eager expectation of the Lord's return was part of what marked the Thessalonian believers as genuine Christians whose lives had been transformed by the gospel. Remember what Paul said in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you 
and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The coming of the Lord comes up again in chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13. And may the Lord make you to increase in abounded love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Our faithful practice of growing love for one another and the Lord's establishing our hearts blameless in holiness are both tied to his coming again and our expectation of it. Paul reiterates this vital connection between our sanctification and the coming of the Lord Jesus as he closes out the letter. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord himself, Paul writes in our text this morning, will descend from heaven. An emphatically personal return of Jesus Christ. He is coming back. His first coming was personal, it was in the flesh, and so will be his coming again. It is every bit as sure as was his first coming. It will be as much a part of history as was his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. The return of the Lord Jesus is a source of great comfort to the saints. On the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus calmed the troubled hearts of his disciples with his promise to return to take them with him to his heavenly home. In John 14, 3, he says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is what comforted the saints. Sometimes we get so irritated with the debates about eschatology that we just wipe this from our expectation, and we lose the benefit of expecting the Lord's return. The Lord himself will descend with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet. These descriptions remind us that his coming again is a royal return. In keeping with the usage of the term coming, parousia, presence, in the ancient world, it was used to describe the visit of a ruler. This is Jesus coming back. He is the king. Every generation of kingdom citizens is to live ready for the Savior King to return. It is the source of our hope and of our accountability to the Lord. It empowers our holy living and our steadfast labors. And that's why Paul includes himself, we who are alive. He includes himself among those who are alive at the coming of the Lord. It's because we all must live ready it is certain. It's not a question of if, but when. And so every generation must live with the expectation of Jesus coming again. Jesus teaches this in Matthew 24 concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. And then in verse 44 of Matthew 24, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Son of Man, reference to coming in the clouds of heaven, as Daniel foretells. 
As Jesus ascended to heaven, we read Acts 1, 10, and 11, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The followers of Jesus gathered together as witnesses of his ascension into heaven, had work to do. They would bear testimony regarding Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We gather to worship Jesus Christ today in what was then the uttermost parts of the earth because of their faithfulness to the gospel mission given to them by Jesus himself. If you are not in Christ, however, His coming again will not be a time of great celebration for you. It will be terrifying. In fact, Revelation talks about the wrath of the Lamb where grown men and mighty men call for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them because of the fear that they will finally have to face Jesus. But for believers, this is our hope and comfort. The Lord himself is returning How can you make sure the certainty of the Lord's return at any time drives your sense of divine mission through every day? How could reminding yourself that the Lord is coming back for sure help you endure grief and disappointment with expectant joy? The rescue is coming. It's going to be personal for you. It's going to be personal for him. He is coming back. The third point we want to look at this morning is the resurrection of the dead in Christ. Besides the return of the Lord, we are comforted by the resurrection of the dead. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, there's no gospel without that, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord. And it's possible that this is direct revelation that God had given to Paul, that we who are alive, who are left into the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. If Jesus comes back but does not raise the dead to life, What good would his return do for those believers that had died? And this was the concern of the Thessalonian believers. They expected Jesus to come back soon, and they were afraid their their fellow brothers and sisters hadn't made it. They could never enjoy entering into their inheritance. Well, Jesus countered the Sadducees' disbelief in the resurrection with the words, God is a God of the living, not the dead. foundation of the resurrection of the dead in Christ are the historical realities of the physical death and physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus, there would be no Christianity at all. There would be no reason for it. It would have been a failed attempt. And yet Jesus indeed is risen from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, first fruits of the first part of the harvest that tells you there's more to come. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We who are alive will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The dead in Christ will rise first. In other words, they will not miss out. They won't. When we think of those we love most who have died, we can feel that they are missing out. They're missing out on seeing children and grandchildren grow up, on graduations and weddings, other occasions where we feel their absence keenly. But we know that to be away from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, according to 2 Corinthians 5.8, which according to Paul in Philippians 1.23 is better by far than anything we can experience here. And when Jesus comes, he will break the bars of death for everyone who is in him. Death can't hold them prisoner any more than it held him. They will come alive, never to die again, immortal and sinless, citizens of his eternal kingdom, body and spirit joined forever in the new heaven and the new earth. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 2, behold, in other words, look, attention, this is actually going to happen. I tell you a mystery, once hidden, now revealed, we shall not all sleep, referring to death, but we shall all be changed, transformed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. That is the hope and comfort you have if you're in Christ. The dead in Christ will be raised to life. But if you're not in Christ, there is a resurrection coming for you that the Scripture describes as a resurrection to shame and everlasting contempt. Because you will have to stand before Jesus to explain why you refuse to trust in Him. And you will be among those to whom he says, depart from me, you who work lawlessness. I never knew you. So how can knowing that all the dead in Christ will be raised to life when he returns change how you think about your loved ones who are asleep in Jesus? Think about they're waking up to that new life. How can the certainty of the resurrection help you process your own aging and illnesses and eventual death? You know, the only experience that we have had personally, individually, is living. Life can be hard. There are hard things about it, but we haven't passed through that gateway of death. We have a little taste of death because of people close to us and because of the illnesses and that kind of thing, but, but we're all marching inexorably toward this day when we too will die. 
Well, as you seek to process that, don't process it in isolation from the reality that the dead in Christ will be raised. They will be resurrected to life. And then verse 17, we learn we are also comforted and we have hope because of the reunion of all believers with the Lord. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Caught up together with them. Part of our grief is the separation. Our sorrow comes from the fact that we can no longer hold close those that were close to us. It can, it can be a shock at first, but as the years pass, things change, but the distance seems to grow greater, and our desire for a reunion becomes more keen. We have comfort in the hope, in the future certainty of our being reunited with our loved ones in the Lord. Think about what it will feel like to embrace one another again, like you did before they died. We who are alive will not remain earthbound and unchanged. We will be changed. We will rise with the dead in Christ to meet the Lord in the air. And what a celebration that will be. But if you are in Christ, if you are not in Christ, you have no reunion to look forward to. It will be separation forever. The scripture refers to it as being cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. As a believer, if you are bearing the weight of grief for your departed loved ones in Christ, let God's promise to you that you will be reunited with them comfort your heart as you anticipate that day. And as I thought about this, it made me think about the second question. If you do not value fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ now, how do you expect to enjoy eternity with them? Finally, in the last part of verse 17, we have comfort and hope because of the residence with the Lord forever. And so we will always be with the Lord this is not like one of those events that you look forward to with great anticipation, and then once it comes, it passes, and you crash back down to earth. This is not the end. It's the beginning of the best that is to come. We were already on that journey if we are in Christ. Our destiny is the forever kingdom, where we will be with Christ forever. We will be able to say, and we do say with the psalmist in Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy, steadfast love shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell, I will take up residence in the house of the Lord forever. But if you're not in Christ, your residence will be the lake of fire forever. Residence with the Lord forever. Eden restored. The universe washed clean of sin and death and sorrow and suffering. With your brothers and sisters in Christ, sinless, immortal, new heaven, new earth, 
this is the future. This is the inheritance. This is the destiny of those that die in Christ and we that are in him. Comfort one another with these certainties. We have reason for hope and comfort in our grief. The return of the Lord Jesus, the resurrection of the dead in Christ, the reunion of all believers with the Lord and residence with the Lord forever. So though the dark is overwhelming and the brightest lights grow dim, though the word of God is trampled on by foolish men, though the wicked never stumble and abound in every place, we will all be humbled when we see his face. And the demons we've been fighting, those without and those within, will be underneath our feet to never rise again. All our sins will be behind us through the blood of Christ erased. And we'll taste your kindness when we see your face. We will see. We will know. Like we've never known before, we'll be found. We'll be home. We'll be yours forevermore. All the waiting will be over. Every sorrow will be healed. All the dreams it seemed could never be will all be real. And you'll gather us together in your arms of endless grace as your bride forever when we see your face. Comfort from God for grieving saints. Let's pray. Before we pray, let me just ask you whether or not you are in Christ. You do realize this is no comfort and there is no hope if you are not. But while you're still alive, you have a chance to turn to Christ and trust in him. This is revelation from the Lord. You can take it to the bank. If you choose to call him a liar, your judgment will be deserved. God, thank you. None of us could deserve to, to have such a future. But through Christ, you have given it to us by his perfect life, his vicarious death, his bodily resurrection, his intercession for us before your throne even now, and his return. God, you have given us this great gift that supersedes the greatest of our sorrows and the deepest of our pain. Lord, may we this day be comforted with the hope that you have given us here. And God, I pray that you would, you would bring to life more this day. You would grant repentance and faith for people to trust in Jesus before it is too late. We pray these things in Christ's name.